Hello and welcome to The Energy Gang, a discussion show about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Ed Crooks, and I want to wish a very happy new year to all of our listeners. For this first show of 2024, we're going to be looking ahead at the coming year in energy. We're going to be talking now about the people, the places and the technologies that everyone's going to be talking about in the year to come. And to do that now and to look ahead into the crystal ball for the coming year, I'm very pleased to be joined by Amy Myers-Jaffe, who's the Director of the Energy, Climate Justice and Sustainability Lab at New York University. Hi, Amy. Good to see you again. Great to be here, Ed. How was your holiday? Have a good time? Had a great holiday. We have a family tradition of theme parking on New Year's Eve, and this year we picked the San Diego Zoo, which has a fantastic New Year's Eve program, so all all fun. Fantastic. Very nice indeed. Sounds great. And it's also a great pleasure to be joined by Melissa Lott, who's the Research Director at Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy, and she's also a professor at Columbia's Climate School. Hi, Melissa. How are you, and how was your holiday? Hey, Ed. Hey, Amy. Doing well. The holiday was good. Um, I'm still in Texas, uh, you know, so it's nice to be back in my home state for a bit. I, lo- I love New York. New York is great. Manhattan is wonderful. Um, but man, the iced tea and tacos, I am, I am full of joy from the two of those things. <laughs> Um, but it was great. Got to spend a lot of time with family. How was your holiday, Ed? It, it was great. I did something uh, unusual for me, which is I spent New Year's Eve in Scotland, uh, visited ah. Glasgow for Hogmanay, which was exciting, and actually did not partake of the full on experience, just stayed at home having dinner with friends, although some members of our party did go out and uh, embrace the night. I was Quite restrained, but still had a very nice time. And it's a beautiful city. Hadn't been to Glasgow for a very, very long time. Was just reminded what a great place it is. When I was working at the International Energy Agency, I went up to Edinburgh to spend the New Year's, you know, Hogmanay celebrations. Why not? Had never been. And I will say, um, not to be too much of an energy walk for a minute, but you know how there's not a lot of sunlight that time of year up there. It's more than a few kept going north. But I just kept thinking because it was a really still night because they had um, some different, you know, pyrotechnics that were happening. Um, And I was thinking about how still it was and the air wasn't moving that much. And I was thinking, man, the wind and the solar are not great this time of year. I wonder what the connections are to anything they have going offshore. And that started my fascination with energy systems in the UK. Um, But yeah, it was great. It was a great environment, really fun. But um, I remember thinking that as I walked down, what is it, the mile that goes up to the castle in Edinburgh? And I was like, hmm, not great wind. (laughs) Yeah, good point. Scotland is, of course, often described as the Saudi Arabia of wind. It's got fantastic wind resource there, both offshore and onshore. And certainly, those still conditions were not a problem when we were there. And very noticeable on the drive up and on the way back again, you go past a lot of wind turbines on the motor, all of them spinning very, very vigorously. And I was thinking exactly the opposite of what your thought was. (laughs) This must be making a fantastic contribution to Scotland's energy supply because it was clearly making that great contribution when we were there. A hundred percent. And this is why you always have to check the data, which is what I tell my students. Always look at the data. You have your perception, your observations, check it with what other observations are. So, all right, I'm back in teacher mode already. Can you tell us the start of the semester? (laughs) (laughs) Indeed, indeed. Down to business then for a new year, a new semester, as you say. Looking ahead then at 2024, I want to kind of organize our conversation by talking about things to look out for in various different categories as we look ahead to 2024. And first one I wanted to start off with is people and get your thoughts on who are the kind of interesting people that you're going to be watching during the course of the coming year, who you think will be movers and shakers, newsmakers, important figures in the world of energy in that coming 12 months. So I don't know who wants to start. I mean, Amy, what are your thoughts on this? Who are the people that you're going to be thinking about in 2024? Well, I have to tell you, I know it's a little hackneyed, but uh, I'm focused on President Biden. He has a lot of difficulties uh, in the energy space coming up for him in an election year. The first challenge, of course, is coming from Bill McKibben, an environmental movement, which is trying to block new approvals for liquefied natural gas export facilities on the Gulf Coast. Um, And the president is sort of coming out against the background of the controversial approval of permitting, which was sort of a legal issue in part of the Willow Project in Alaska. And of course, we're at record high U.S. oil production still going up. Um, So how does he navigate that? He can keep talking about his historic climate Inflation Reduction Act, and uh, we're going to have some 
you know, regulations, we'll see how tight they get on uh, methane in the United States. But I think the president has a, a rocky road. And then whatever he decides on the international stage, whether it's related to the conflict in the Middle East or conflicts elsewhere, you know, all of those things are going to have a big impact on energy markets. Yeah, that's very interesting. And that's fascinating, that point, as you say, about US gas exports, where we're in the middle of this huge new wave of investment, big construction boom going on, US gas exports to the rest of the world are set to increase very dramatically. And President Biden's kind of presided over that. And he's essentially indicated that he sees no conflict between that and his climate strategy and his ambitions for cutting emissions and so on. But now there is definitely a faction in his party that is holding him to account on that and turning up the heat. What do you think he's going to do about that? Which way do you think the Biden administration will ultimately jump? Well, you know, it's basically a U.S. Department of Energy process. And so there's two ways I think they could go. They could try to do a sleight of hand, which is say they have to revisit the different features of approving new plants and maybe put more emphasis on uh, the science of methane, which has changed over time and new studies coming out in the past year. Uh, that would buy him time till after the election. But, you know, I recently heard an interview with Bill McKibben where he said he really thought that they were making progress so they were going to be able to block the plant that they've targeted. So uh, hard to know. Very interesting, though. As you say, that's going to be a great one to watch in the year to come. Melissa, what about you? Who are the people you think we should be looking at? Well, I'll just say, I mean, there's a lot of different ways my brain goes when you ask that question, Ed, in terms of different people involved in the conversation. We were just talking about COP before the end of the year. And I will say um, in our conversations, I know, Ed, we talked about the number of elections around the world. I think Julio Friedman flagged that as well. And so to Amy's points, I'm watching Biden, but I don't know about y'all, I'm watching a lot of other countries and then also local elections as well. So I'm paying attention to what's happening here in Texas, but also outside of the United States. I mean, our neighbors, Mexico, go down to Venezuela, go through Latin America, then think through India, Indonesia. I mean, I also wonder, Ed, and I'm curious what you're thinking about what's going on in the UK with all these statements. You've got popular opinion saying we actually need to keep decarbonizing or decarbonize faster, but then you've got a lot of these statements being made um, about actually we need to slow things down and you know we need to delay a couple of different actions. So I'm watching a bunch of different elections around the world and not from a, I like, you know, political quarterbacking point of way, but specifically for what we're talking about here and Amy, what you're talking about, which is what is it going to do to the near term and longer term energy decisions? So one of the things about that, Melissa, that's super interesting is that people thought the election in Argentina might take them in a different direction, but they just announced they're going to a national cap and trade, which everybody was uh, very surprised about. So, you know, the elections sometimes bring about improvements like the election in Brazil with deforestation policy and so forth. And I'll just repeat one quick comment that I made the other day um, in a conversation with you, Ed, which was climate and energy matter in these elections. That is really interesting. I think energy has mattered for a long time, especially the price of the pump and what it's doing to the economy. But this energy and climate conversation being a major factor in a number of these elections is really interesting to watch. And I think a step change, certainly from when I started in this work 20 years ago. Yeah, I think that's right. Although I also think it's the case that there's a big difference around the world in the way that energy and climate issues are viewed. Absolutely. And I think sometimes so all three of us, we're based in the US, we tend to see things naturally through an American lens. And it is the case that in the US, there are very, very bright dividing lines between the parties on the issues of energy and climate. And the way that the 2024 election goes in the US will be very significant for the future of energy policy and the, the energy system as a whole. I mean, possibly with some qualifications, which you might want to get into. But anyway, as I say, very clear divisions on energy in this country in a way that and a lot of other parts of the world don't exist in quite the same way. And you mentioned the UK, Melissa. If you think about the UK election, which is quite likely to happen this year, just possible it could be pushed into very, very early 2025, but it's most likely to be in 2024. Actually, there it doesn't look like an election would make a massive amount of difference. There's probably a bit more commitment to decarbonization on the part of the opposition Labour Party now well ahead in the polls, but still the currently ruling Conservative Party is very much committed to net zero and so on. And although they've kind of pulled back on a couple of minor targets here and there, the overall direction of travel is still very much the same. 
And so in the UK context, is a change of government going to make a massive amount of difference to climate and energy strategy overall? No, I don't think it will. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I will say it's in, we have a, a number of European colleagues within the Center on Global Energy Policy, and they find it fascinating and comment to me often about our elections and kind of, you know, what the extreme positions are and then comparing it to kind of where their positions are and where the baseline around social license to operate in the face of a changing climate where that exists or where it doesn't and what it means in terms of carbon budgets and commitments and how much wiggle room there really is um, in those conversations and what the, what do you call it, ceiling and floor are, uh, not to use a cap and trade parallel too strongly, but where the ceiling and floor are. Yeah. And just thinking about the US then specifically, as I say, election coming up this year, very, very different positions staked out between the parties. And certainly if you hear people around um, President Trump and what he's saying about what he'd do if he gets another term in office. Let's talk about dismantling the Inflation Reduction Act, very much pulling back on the incentives for low carbon energy and EVs in the IRA. Probably a few things might be safe, perhaps carbon capture, perhaps nuclear power, financial support for those would be maintained. But the theory is that much of the other apparatus incentivizing and supporting low carbon energy would be dismantled. But then you also hear a lot of people say, well, actually, if you look at the states that are benefiting from these incentives, a lot of them are Republican states. They have Republican representatives in the House, in the Senate. They have Republican governors. And are all these uh, Republicans really going to want to vote for taking away a lot of incentives that support important industries in their states? And so people often draw the analogy with the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, which um, President Trump was keen to demolish, but couldn't manage to get the votes in Congress to make that happen. And people say maybe the IRA is going to be something similar in the second Trump term. I don't know. What do you think about that? For me, there's two conversations. One is the Inflation Reduction Act and the idea of it is already a law. It is signed. Dismantling it, I mean, you can certainly weaken it, but completely getting rid of it, that's very, very tough. Versus will there be leadership to sort out the rest of the things that haven't been sorted out if you want to accelerate progress towards net zero and reach the nationally determined contribution set of goals, the near-term goals, all of that. So those are two different things. Um, and I think that's true for all of us, but definitely tell me if you disagree or you see it differently. So yes, you can weaken a few things around the Inflation Reduction Act, but you can also just not act to sort out all the other non-technical barriers to getting things built so that they can actually capitalize on those incentives, um, which right now we just haven't sorted that out yet. Well, and you can appropriate differently. So I would imagine a Trump administration would appropriate to SMR small nuclear, but they wouldn't appropriate to some of the more renewables. They probably wouldn't do anything to help wind because the natural gas industry on some level have really spent a lot of money trying to kill wind in different environments, even though it's super popular with the utilities in Oklahoma. So you have these tensions and some of that might come through appropriations. You know, maybe a Trump administration would appropriate towards certain kinds of energy and not others. Yeah, I think that's right. And certainly that's going to be an important thing to watch for in 2025 then if we do get a second Trump administration. My own personal feeling is I think I'm a bit more pessimistic about the support for clean energy under the Inflation Reduction Act perhaps than the consensus is. I think if you think about where kind of conventional wisdom mostly seems to be. It's essentially making your point, Melissa, that it'll be hard to dismantle this whole uh, apparatus, this whole framework of legislation and incentives. But I think there's also going to be a very considerable determination on the part of Trump, if he does get a, a second shot at the presidency, to push very hard. I think this is going to be one of the targets that's absolutely on his radar and something that he's going to be keen to have a success on. And so we'll see. I mean, but I think uh, I, I'm, I'm still, as I say, other people seem rather more optimistic about the outlook than I am. Well, and I don't disagree that the uncertainty that this brings is not already having effects, right? So that uncertainty is if the goal is to decarbonize as quickly as possible, if that is your goal, then that uncertainty is concerning because it does end up slowing down different projects and people aren't as confident in making their bets. What is the number one thing I hear from industry, which is give me 
some kind of clear shot, like a clear pathway forward. Like this is where you're going and I will optimize things around that. But when you add uncertainty in the mix, yeah, there's opportunities there, but there's also a lot of stuff that just slows me down. Um, so I can't move as clearly towards a, any given direction. Hey, listen, the oil industry gave themselves a lot of goodies in their lobbying for the Inflation Reduction Act. And I don't think they're looking to not get federal assistance for carbon sequestration or DAC. I don't think they're not looking to get assistance to try to build up hydrogen. So maybe we change the definitions for hydrogen or something like that. But I, I think a lot of his supporters, adamant supporters, want a lot of the things that are in the Inflation Reduction Act. So I, I, I think it's Joe Manchin didn't put all that effort in to have have it all get undone. And same thing with a lot of these Republicans who didn't vote for it, but, you know, negotiated what Manchin would or wouldn't agree to. So I think the industry has a lot of things they want. That's why I think it'll be selective. The easiest thing to do is not to try to do it through Congress and therefore not succeed. The easiest thing to, is to do it through the appropriations process. Yeah, that is a great point. And as you say, certainly that's kind of more evidence on the optimism side of the scale in terms of a lot of these provisions being maintained. So I want to change the focus a little bit with my person to watch in 2024 and shift the attention to China. My choice is uh, Wang Chanfu, who is the chairman of BYD, the Chinese electric vehicle maker, which has just been hitting the headlines just recently because of outselling Tesla in terms of sales of battery electric vehicles in the fourth quarter of 2023, making it the largest EV manufacturer in the world. Just tremendous story in terms of the growth of this company. Uh, it's very impressive in terms of technological progress in China, the way they have been developing, not just with BYD, but several other companies as well, building up from essentially kind of nothing, then becoming battery producers, and then uh, taking that into EVs as well. These very, very compelling offerings. There's clearly, they're not all the way there yet in terms of international competition. So big market share in China, which is growing very fast as an EV market. Um, they've launched a few models in Europe, which have not yet been hugely successful. And you see some of the reviews, for instance, they recently launched the BYD Seal, which is an executive saloon type car intended to compete with the Tesla Model 3. Probably it's still not quite as good as the Tesla Model 3, and it's slightly more expensive even. So they're not yet kind of world beaters, but it does feel like, particularly given the enormous amount of progress they've made, they're going to get there, and there's still a lot more to come from them. They definitely have international ambitions. They're going to be building a European plant in Hungary. There are predictions that really when Chinese automakers get into the European market properly, they could take a very, very significant share of the European EV market. And as I say, uh, Wang Chanfu of BYD is one of the absolutely key figures in that, has been very, very personally instrumental in building that company, making it a competitor. And he's definitely going to be someone to watch as a very impressive person, definitely uh, someone to keep a close eye on in 2024 and beyond. Well, let me just say, Ed, that he recently gave a speech saying that their aspiration is to take 10% of the international market, which would be a big, big ambition. The Financial Times just did a profile, which of course is always you know, I always tell people you invite the evil eye in your own country or elsewhere when you get too profiled. But <laughs> one of the things they one of the things they said about him is that he's focused very squarely on cutting costs and on securing supply chains. And that would distinguish him from a lot of other companies he's competing with. Um, and so I do think BYD is a company to watch. You might recall that was my in our last episode for the holidays. That was in my success bucket for uh, 2023. And I think you're right. Their trajectory seems to have a lot of momentum. Absolutely. So let's move on then. Let's talk about places next, places to watch, parts of the world that we're going to be keeping an eye on in 2024. Uh, Melissa, what's it for you? Oh, man, we can tell where my brain is already because I'm, I'm thinking about COP. I'm thinking about Azerbaijan. 
Um, I've never been a, or I guess that will soon change uh, as we come into this next year, but what are we going to be putting in place? And specifically when I think about the place, it's okay. What are the conditions that are being created to advance in particular, the financing, the energy transition conversation? Uh, we grabbed that, you know, as one of the kind of focus areas of this last COP and what is going to be needed to really start accelerating infrastructure deployment and build outs, um, and particularly in low income and developing and emerging economies. And so um, I don't know, have, have y'all been to Azerbaijan? Have you guys Never spent have. any time don't there? No. Yeah. So I think it'll be interesting and in having the COP in that country, in that place, we talked about how much different COPs have been affected by the location in which they are held. And so I think it'll be interesting to see how this one comes together, but jury's still out. It's early days. Very interesting that we're potentially going to get three consecutive COPs in significant oil producing countries. So yep. obviously COP28 in the UAE last year, then this year COP29 in Azerbaijan. And I think we're scheduled to have COP30 in Brazil exactly. um, in 2025 as well. So that again, I mean, we've debated this question endlessly. I, I think I've uh, gone on and on about my position. I think it's a good idea that we have these COPs in all producing countries. I think we need global solutions to climate change. And that absolutely includes bringing in the large energy producers and the large oil and gas producers as well. But it's going to be interesting to see how that kind of shifts the debate over time and whether the debate manages to stay on track given the strong influence that oil producers are going to have. And then speaking of Brazil, I mean, that's really, it's less than two years out now, right? And I've, yeah, I'm sure y'all are following this too, but this whole Brazil launching regulated carbon markets conversation is going on right now. I really wonder where that's going to be in this next year and then in the run-up to hosting COP. Um, it's not a small deal. Yeah, that's a great point. That's also going to be fascinating to watch, as you say. So, Amy, what's your place to watch? So my place to watch is uh, not a singular place, but multiple kinds of places, and that is data centers. Our friends at Grid Strategies compiled all the Form 714s and are showing a 4.7% rise in the United States in electricity use over the next five years. And some of that is going to come from the IRA, from the new manufacturing plants and so forth. But $150 billion of that is new data centers to crunch AI. And so, so that's, to me, you know, a 2024 thing to watch. You've got the new 24-7 carbon-free granular certificate trading alliance. So are we going to have a new market created in uh, renewable energy credits that is going to bypass you know, structured markets and try to create a new hourly market for renewable energy credits. Uh, the idea behind it, you've got Google, a company called Level 10, Microsoft, AES, Constellation, and others that are going to try to build this marketplace so that trading an hourly, the idea is if you have curtailed at noon or you have curtailed wind at different times of day, you could then take advantage of that in this market and then it would incentivize people to put in storage. So in the short term, people are thinking it might help the financing of battery storage if the, this market gets off the ground. In the long term, uh, because they're trying to create an hourly market, sort of a derivatives hourly market, the question is maybe that would help with the Biden definition by 2028 or whenever the hourly matching green hydrogen definition kicks in, it, it could be sort of, if it succeeds, it could be game changing. If it doesn't succeed, then we have a big problem here in the United States because we're going to have a lot more electricity demand and how are we going to keep decarbonizing momentum going? That is fascinating. Yeah, no, I hadn't known about all that in terms of, uh, as you say, the way that it could change the energy market as a whole. It's been one of those things where in the past, it's I mean, absolutely the case that big buyers of power and particularly the big tech companies have had a huge impact on the electricity system. Listen, they started off in offsets. They were criticized. Then they moved to purchasing power agreements in the actual regions where they had their data centers. But this is very interesting because it's really like a shot over the bow of the utilities. It's like saying, listen, you won't put in pricing reform. So we're going to create a synthetic market 
to create those pricing signals ourselves to make decarbonization and the use of storage commercial uh, on an hourly basis because you are resisting that. And it really is a threat to the utility model. And it really could be pretty impactful. You know, it made me think about what happened, not to date myself, uh, when the New York Mercantile Exchange opened a crude oil contract back in the day in the 80s. You know, the oil industry wasn't going to use it. And, you know, it was this thing New York traders were doing. And then all of a sudden, all the secret lease barrel deals and foreign contracts on, you know, bilateral basis and, un- and lack of transparency on prices went out the window and all contracts went to the NYMEX plus or NYMEX minus or NYMEX linked, right? So th- I think this could wind up being the same thing. They could actually force electricity pricing reform in the United States if they can get the market off the ground. I'm curious, did you guys see this New York Times article? It's, it relates it relates to this. Um, what was the title of it? Uh, Britain's economy is not working. Here are two key reasons. And the next sentence said, the power grid can't keep up with what's going on, essentially, my paraphrasing of the next sentence. But it was the power grid was the first thing they highlighted. And I thought it was really interesting. You talk about markets, Amy, my mind is immediately going to, if I want to develop and if I want to build a business and if I want to, in some cases, realize incentives that exist under existing policy. So in the New York Times article, they uh, flagged the CHIPS Act. Um, so around it, what am I going to do if I can't get a connection? And the number of companies I've talked to who are like, I'm having trouble getting my utility to call me back. I need a bigger pipe. You know, I need a bigger wire to get more electrons into my system um, because I want to use that electricity to do X, Y, Z, you know, insert lots of different processes here, testing out, you know, emerging technologies, using existing technologies to produce things we want, et cetera, et cetera. And I can't get a call back, <laughs> much less get the wires built. And then if I do that, I mean, it's really, really expensive and I've got to think through that. So actually I'm evaluating my onsite generation potential and I'm picking different locations for my facility based on my ability to get enough land to actually do that. Um, And this is a really big emerging thing. And you add all the local regulations and kind of, again, back to the non-technical barriers we haven't sorted out for building infrastructure. And this is a massive, massive thing. And it's not just in the US. It's not just in any state. It is a global and certainly in the case of the New York Times article, they were highlighting the UK in this case in semiconductor manufacturing. But it is so far from being isolated to those industries and those locations. Yeah, absolutely. That is fascinating. I agree. Amy, just jumping back to those numbers you cited, just to check, that was a, did you say in, specifically in the US, that's a 4.7% increase in electricity demand over five years? Not 4.7% a year, it's 4.7% Correct. in oh, five years. Yeah. In fi- over five years. But, but you know, US electricity demand, like for 20 years, was completely flat. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I just wanted to make that point to, to listeners who might think, oh, that doesn't sound like very much. Actually, by the standards of the power industry in the United States, that's a very big deal. Yeah. And their standard operating procedures have been largely built around, okay, there's local cases where electricity demand has gone up as cities have developed, et cetera, et cetera. But overall, when you've been operating in this paradigm where you're like replacement, there's some growth in some locations, but there's also maybe some shrinking in other areas or certainly growth isn't what you might have expected. And now all of a sudden you're going, whoa, 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 we're going up again. How do I get approval to build all this stuff? And then more to the point, how do I actually get it built? What are my non-wires options? What are my wires options? At the end of the day, I'm going to need more electrons. So where do I get them from. Um, this is something that is coming not from policy in this case, it's from demand for a service that we want with these data centers and all the things that we use those data centers for. So let me just say, because Grid Strategies was you know, quite detailed uh, you know, in their assessment, and they say that the peak level of electricity demand in this five-year period is going to grow by 38 gigawatts. So just to put a a tangible number on it. I mean, and that that's a big number in electricity world. And as Melissa was saying, that's looking at the national average, which in a way can be a bit misleading because it'll be concentrated in certain parts of the country, I guess, presumably Texas, probably some in California, other states that have um, large concentrations of data centers. And so in terms of the local impact in specific markets, it's going to be much greater than that. Well, then the question is, if I'm a state that's looking to build my economy, do I want to attract a data center or I want to drive out data centers? You know, I, I think it's like an interesting question in terms of, you know, what is the path going forward? Yeah, absolutely. Now, I want to shift focus again then to bring up my place 
to watch in 2024, which is a bit of an obvious one, really, because I guess the eyes of the world are very much on this region already, which is the Arabian Peninsula and the seas around it. Because of the uh, drone and other attacks on shipping by Houthis from Yemen, there's been severe disruption to uh, shipping traffic moving through the Red Sea. It's clear that um, it's not going to be easy to resolve that. We've already had the United States and many other countries kind of uh, flexing their muscles, mobilizing resources to the region to try and stop it, but it hasn't been stopped yet. And there is clearly a severe risk of escalation. I noticed that Iran had sent a warship to the region recently. And for energy purposes, that Red Sea route through the Suez Canal is important for some products, but clearly the really big issue is over on the other side of the Arabian Peninsula, the Arabian Gulf, Strait of Hormuz, through which about 15 million barrels a day of crude and about 5 million barrels a day of oil products passes, 20 million barrels a day or so. In total, roughly 20% of all the world's oil goes through that one very narrow strait. If the situation worsens, if there's some kind of escalation, that could create huge disruption in global oil markets and a very steep increase in prices. Oil markets at the moment don't seem really very worried about it. Brent crude is trading, as we speak, just looking it up, it's about $78 a barrel. So it's no kind of uh, elevated level, really. It's been significantly higher than that last year. And so traders don't seem to be worried about the risk of escalation, particularly at the moment. But it's definitely something I would want to flag up and definitely something people should be keeping a very close eye on is what happens in that region over the coming months. Well, and, and I do think, Ed, that there are all kinds of different ways where things could flare up. Part of the thing that's been driving markets to be healthy and the soft landing and all, all that kind of stuff is that we were thinking inflation was getting under control. But if I can't do this shipping route through the Suez Canal, you know, that is inflationary. You've got the low water level for the Panama Canal. Um, and then you have these other, you know, sort of hot spots. You've got this, you know, do we, don't we believe that Maduro has the guts to try to launch a military action against the border with Guyana? So there are a lot of flashpoints because Brazil put troops to kind of discourage Venezuela. It would mean we have to start in with, you know, sanctions again. What happens if the United States either accidentally or by necessity gets into a military conflict with Iran, then we have to start telling China we don't want them to buy Iranian crude and will the Chinese comply or not comply. Um, so there are a lot of red flags out there in the sort of traditional energy space. And I think the, the thing is, I just noticed because the statistics just came out, believe it or not, financial player speculative positions, long positions in uh, the futures market at a, at a low. So a little bit surprising. I mean, they, I think maybe there's so much uncertainty, everybody got out of their positions to the end of the year. So now the question is, what happens now, depending on what happens, you know, sort of on the world stage? I'll say to both of your points, these regional dynamics, and we so, talk so much about the next steps in the energy transition, 2030, 2050, all that, but these near-term dynamics are going to be really interesting to watch. And to Amy's point, the regions, there's some of the ones we might classically think of, even if we're not energy folks. Um, but then also, I think these regional dynamics are going to be really important to follow. Completely agree. And I'm not sure what's going to happen in the next six to 12 months when you got elections all these other things going on, it's, it's going to be interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And when you think about the potential for short-term volatility and what could be making the headlines in energy during the coming year, that's very high on the list. That's got, got to be one of the top contenders. When you choose Wood Mackenzie, you choose a true partner, which brings innovation and clarity along with independent business intelligence. Our global solutions provide you the data, research and analytics that you need to succeed in the energy transition. We've provided energy intelligence for 50 years, and in the past decade we've added a wide range of additional capabilities in power and renewables. The energy transition is the biggest change we've ever seen. Market evolutions and technology revolutions have disrupted business models and are creating a new energy landscape. 
In the 21st century, electricity will come to dominate the energy mix. Navigate these changing energy markets with Wood Mackenzie as policy, regulations and technology continue to evolve. Speak to us today about how our experts can help you thrive in this fast-moving industry as we work together to transform the way we power our planet. So I want to move on, though, and talk about technologies now and to talk about the technologies that you're going to be following closely and uh, thinking about in 2024. Maybe, Melissa, start with you. What do you think will be a particularly interesting technology to look at this year? Oh, man. I wonder if Tim Latimer is going to hear me say this and cheer as he hears it. I'm watching Enhanced Geothermal. I am watching it from the tech perspective. I'm really interested. Y'all know I don't need to go down the line about firm dispatchable power and you know what we're figuring out. And um, I'll put a comment about nuclear and some heartbreak I had towards the end of the year on that one. You know, I'll put that on ice for just the moment. Um, but I'll say, you know, when I look at that plant, um, Project Red out in Nevada and coming online, you know, that was the one that is Fervo Energy. So that's why I mentioned him um, and Google. And it's actually supplying energy. To your point, Amy, it's in support of data centers, massive data centers in that area. And so I'm really looking at this because we have to figure out this clean, firm, dispatchable power equation somehow. Because if we don't, we know what the numbers tell us, which is you end up with unreliable and or unaffordable, so costly power, which is the backbone decarbonization. That's a big problem. So um, I'm excited to follow it because it's it's reached the point where this is not just theory or small. This is actually going into the bigger demonstration and bigger. This is a 3.5 megawatt project in the case of Project Red. These are bigger projects um, and that's exciting. So I'm like, gigawatts, let's go. <laughs> you know, Where are we going to go? So I'm following that one. I'm, I'm curious which ones y'all are following. If you had to pick one, because I, I limited myself to one. Amy? So I'm following, although it's, it's had a rocky road, I'm following sort of like solid state batteries or the sort of mm -hmm. the EV innovation path because Hyundai just filed a patent for an all solid state EV battery. I'm going to make a quote here because you know I'm not not a technologist per se, uh, which the pressure is constantly maintained in each cell, uh, regardless of charging or discharging rates. Uh, it's some kind of fluid based system. They say it's going to make it same thing that we've been promised by Toyota, but seeing delays, you know, lighter, faster charging. And, you know, that comes on top of Oak Ridge National Lab uh, saying they've developed a new lithium ion material with a formulation where the electrolyte also maintains a better ion flow uh, that would triple battery lifespan and, you know, speed recharging. So I, I think that there's going to be a next generation and that's the technology I'm watching. Yeah, I'm certainly going to agree with you that it's worth watching. I do feel, as you alluded to, that we've been here before and we've been burned before and hopes have been raised about solid state batteries. I mean, in principle, they sound fantastic and they can have longer range and quicker charging and greater safety than liquid electrolyte lithium ion batteries. However, it feels like, and you mentioned Toyota, as you say, you know, Toyota were talking last year about exciting plans and they're rolling out production. I think they were saying from 2026 of a solid, solid state battery. Well, now they're saying 2030. So that's why I, I, I put exactly. a caveat Exactly in. that. But, but, I mean, for people who didn't see this uh, kind of clarification of their earlier announcement, because it felt like there was a big fanfare about the initial announcement, then they were somewhat quieter with it later on. Basically, the plan is to start production in 2026, 2027. They'll be rolling these cars with solid-state batteries out, but in pretty limited numbers for the rest of the 2020s, with a view then, hopefully, ideally, to large-scale deployment and a wide rollout after 2030. So that feels like, again, it's kind of being put off, put off, put off. In the meantime, we would hope and expect that cars with more conventional lithium-ion batteries and cars with maybe even with uh, some sodium-ion batteries will be coming up now because we're seeing CATL of China actually building a plant to build sodium-ion batteries which can go into EVs and so that technology apparently is coming up fast now. So is there going to be demand for solid-state batteries in the long term? Could they be a very important part of the EV landscape 
in the longer term, i.e. into the 2030s? Yes, they certainly could. But do they still have quite a lot to prove? Yes, I think they do. Fair, Amy? Well, listen, it's a lot of different lot of different companies, Ed. Uh, GM, VW, Ford, Nissan, Honda. I mean, people are working on this, but you're right. Maybe I'm too optimistic to think it'll be in the news in 2024. But but Hyundai just made their announcement, so and I I was focused on that. No, I agree. And, and as you say, it's definitely interesting, definitely something to watch. Now, I also want to highlight a technology that I think has quite a lot to prove. And Melissa, you alluded to this earlier, small modular reactors. I think about the year that that technology had last year and the very significant setback in terms of the most advanced project for SMRs in the US getting cancelled. It seems to me then that 2024 is a very critical year for both um, New Scale, the company that was hoping to supply the technology, supply the reactors for that project, and other companies that are developing SMRs. They really need to show significant progress this year, or I think there's going to be a general sense, oh, this is another false dawn, this is something else that was promised that generated excitement. The famous nuclear hype cycle where a new technology comes along and everyone gets excited about it for a while, and then it turns up in reality not to live up to the promises that were made, and then you get a lot of disappointment and hopes deflate. I think there's a danger that we're just kind of on the tipping point of that for SMRs, and so I think it's an industry that badly needs some good news. And I think there was a lot of excitement over nuclear power at COP28, and we had these 24 governments setting this goal of tripling nuclear generation capacity by 2050. There was certainly a higher profile for nuclear power and its role in addressing climate change at COP28 than there had been at any previous COP. All of that is true, but even so, you can't, as an industry, survive on hopes and goals and aspirations and promises for distant achievements in the future, there needs to be some real progress in terms of contracts being signed, developments making progress, regulatory approvals being secured, perhaps even construction starting. Probably a bit unrealistic to think about that happening this year, but certainly it will be important, I think, to see preparations being made to allow construction to start on SMR projects as I say, so that's something I think is going to be worth watching very closely is this kind of pivotal moment for that technology in 2024. So Ed, I'm curious if we're talking about the same kind of um, announcements that were happening last year. I I will say that kind of um, uh, moment where you, you see the announcement, because I talk about that project in Alaska all the time, the Oklo Mic Reactor, all of that, and it got that was announced before the end of the year. Um, is that the one you're talking about? Or are you talking about another one? Is there, yeah. No, no. I'm thinking about quite another setback. I, I meant the Idaho Falls project, um, yeah. UAMPS yeah. one, which was meant to be quite a significant scale plant using small modular reactor technology, which essentially they couldn't find customers for. Customers who could have bought the power from the plant decided it was just too expensive. Well, and you know, the question is, luckily, no repercussions but having the earthquake in Japan might also revisit this whole question about the safety of nuclear power, uh, even though luckily there were no nuclear accidents. So I just think it's it's a tough technology to permit and finance everywhere. And I know we don't have an hour for it today, so I'll just um, put in two quick comments. One, to your point, Ed, around how we figure out streamlining these processes to figure out if these technologies will be able to, you know, live up to the promise. I think the reason the canceled contract in Alaska and the Air Force component of it was uh, uh, one of those ones that I just kind of went, this is a particularly tough one for the U.S. nuclear picture, which brings me to my second point, is that when you think about streamlining and when you think about stuff, it's like on a military base, like where there is kind of one organization controlling a lot of the decision-making authority and one kind of flow of capital one, you know, these types of things. It just, 
you know, it gave me that moment where it was like, okay, how do we get too much more streamlined than that? That was the question that went through my head. And I'm not saying there's not an answer to that. I'm going to have to call Rich Powell over at ClearPath and talk to Josh Freed and see what their takes on it are and their thoughts are here in the new year and where we go from here. But that was just one of those moments for the US picture. But that's the second comment, which is at the same time, we're seeing Poland full steam ahead. We're seeing additional announcements outside of the US. And so what I wonder for nuclear is how much of this is a US story and countries like the US that have made choices like Germany, they turned off nuclear. That's just the, the whole history behind it, which goes to Amy's points around concerns um, that have happened and you know what happens after accidents. But I do wonder where the international story is going to go on this and what countries are going to choose that nuclear is going to be their firm dispatchable power. Because power doesn't have decades to wait if you want to hit decarbonization targets. It's the first mover. And so we have to figure this out. But Amy, your thoughts? Well, I think, you know, one of the big features that no one talks about, like the elephant in the room, is that even Bill Gates's plant had a delay uh, because they don't have a secure uranium supply. And so this whole question about readily available uh, fuel for nuclear uh, is also a barrier right now. And there isn't really like a clear, I mean, we've had some, you know, mining projects that have been discussed and so forth, but there's supply chain problems in terms of the fuel. And so I, I think that's, you know, also not discussed too often, but maybe even a bigger factor than if I can get the community around these plants to accept it. Yeah, and for those who missed it, um, there was a conversation we had after Russia invaded Ukraine. Ed, was it with Amy Harder, I think? It was, we were talking yeah, that's about, right, yeah. Yeah, Exactly to your point, um, Amy, around how do we think about this highly enriched, low-assay uranium, like the fuel we need for these advanced reactors? How do we think about HALU? And like what what happens when you've got one single supplier? And it's not that other companies can't supply it, exactly to your point. It's that they're saying, if we're going to make those investments, we need to clearly have a market, which goes back to the need for all these demand pull technologies. We've got to create markets. We've got to create the conditions in which these things can be snowballs rolling down hills. Otherwise, they become one-off projects that one or two changes in the conditions ends up shattering them before they actually get off the ground. Listen, there's a chicken egg problem. You know, I, I can't I can't get funding for the HALU project because I can't get guaranteed offtake from these new projects and I can't do the new projects unless I'm sure I have the fuel. At least in the United States, it's a pretty dire picture. So I don't know how that gets resolved. And my last comment I have to make on this, and it's not because I am part of Energy Policy Center, but it's when you talk chicken and egg, I'm like, all right, policy. How you where and how are you going to step in? Like where is an appropriate role? Like because that's that's how we get through these chicken eggs um, issues. So yeah, absolutely, and that's something else I think which is going to be interesting to watch in 2024 is whether the U.S. government, other governments around the world, decide to take action on that, and whether they think, as you say, there is a logjam here that needs to be broken by policy action, and whether there's something that they can do to break that logjam. So that's well worth uh, keeping an eye on, I think. So something else I want to talk about, um, stories that are currently going under the radar a bit, but could be significant in 2024. What do you think? Well, I'm focused on the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission saying that they're going to actually try to bring out the new rules for how companies must report their greenhouse gas emissions and how they must report on their tangible material climate risks. Uh, California has already put down the gauntlet and said that companies with over 500 million in annual revenues that do business in California have to report on climate risks. And for uh, companies of a billion annual revenue doing business in California have to report on their scope one and two greenhouse gas emissions starting in 2026 and then scope three uh, in 2027. So we're kind of moving forward on that. That is going to be a boom, I think, for the sort of carbon tech space because people need new software. They're going to need new systems. Uh, if the regulator is going to actually look carefully at how you're reporting your emissions and how you're reporting um, your exposures with the possibility that you could be prosecuted for greenwashing, I think that's going to create a whole boom to the cottage industry that was already developing. 
Yeah, very interesting. I think that I agree with you. That's going to be a very big deal in the US in 2024. And I still think it's something which is probably not fully appreciated by a lot of people. A lot of people in business in the US still seem not to fully have taken on board what the requirements are going to be, what they're going to have to do. So definitely, as the sort of reality of that sinks in, uh, it's going to be, as you say, uh, definitely one to watch. Melissa, what's yours? Something under the radar? I think it's under the radar if you don't live in these circles. But and I'm pretty sure you're looking at the second half of what I'm going to say, which is I'm looking at mining and I'm looking at South America and I'm looking at Chile and Panama, specifically in the Chile case, this new deal that's happened around lithium and the SQM Cadalco stuff. But with Panama, copper, I'm assuming you're following this too, Ed. I bet you are. Um, yeah. And actually, that was going to be my uh, suggestion for something. I'm not surprised. <laughs> so, yeah, we're, we're very much on the same page. I mean, the thing that in particular I just wanted to highlight for people was just how copper intensive low carbon energy technologies are compared to high carbon technologies. If you compare a um, uh, offshore wind uh, turbine, if you compare offshore wind power generation to uh, coal or natural gas power generation, it needs about five times as much copper in terms of tons per gigawatt of capacity. If you compare um, solar to gas or coal, it needs about twice as much copper. If you think about expected growth, if you think about another commitment from COP28, tripling renewable power generation by 2030, that implies a very significant increase in demand for copper. And it's just not clear how that demand is going to be met. Um, it's not clear where the projects are around the world. They're going to be able to ramp up that quickly. It's not clear that the mining industry is ready to take that on board to make the investment that's going to be required to increase capacity. And as you say, then you get some of these kind of um, political issues, security issues in many parts of the world that are going to potentially disrupt supply. Tell me about the Panama situation. Yeah, so I don't know if you saw the, um, this was right before the holidays, where it was the protesters that came out, and it it just shows some of the tensions in the, in the transition to low-carbon technology. So um, essentially, it was what, like one week after Congress had renewed the Cobre Man Panama's mine contract, they end up having huge environmental protests against it. And so it's this idea of like, you know, okay... So what happens next? Because we need copper, to your point, to be able to actually transition. But if we can't get it, you know, with existing mines continuing their operation, which is actually a conversation going on in Chile, but also expanding operations and creating new mines, like what happens? And in the very, very near term, existing mines are maybe what I'm referring to as like the slightly under the radar piece of this, which is, okay, what's happening with existing mines? It's kind of like existing nuclear reactors. Are they going to start phasing out? In which case we're kind of making the hole deeper that we have to dig ourselves out of. Um, so that's, that's the, that's the tension I was talking about. And this happened, it was, it was right before the holidays. So 15, 16, 17, 18, December, right in the middle of the month. What about some good news you think we might get during 2024? I actually think I did a spoiler on myself earlier. Um, so I'm wondering how Brazil's carbon markets are going to go. And uh, Amy, you mentioned Argentina and cap and trade. Like I'm really, I think we might get some good news around us recognizing the externality in markets, which has a significant force. Even if it's a smaller market carbon price, it still affects the market. So, so the interesting thing, uh, Melissa, I, I think that's an excellent one. And the interesting thing about it is that what Brazil is choosing to do, because of course, uh, most of their emissions are from deforestation, and they're not going to include that. Um, so, so what's interesting is they're choosing to focus on industrial emissions, um, and that would make a big stand. I think part of the motivation for that is the concern about the European carbon border adjustment. But if they do something very innovative that promotes uh, reductions of the emissions in steel and other hard-to-abate sector then I, I do think because Brazil is such an important economy, uh, what they do if it's successful could set very good precedents for other countries. Yeah, agreed. That is a very significant development potentially there. So now, Amy, what's your choice for something, uh, good news that we could potentially look out for in 2024? So I may regret this if we have a follow-on show next year, which is like, how good were you on, uh, on 2024? Because I've already stuck my neck out 
uh, on several things, including the SEC, which might get litigated and doesn't happen. Um, you know, uh, I'm thinking that 2024 might be the year, the actual year of hydrogen, and that it's not hype. And that is because we've got 24 countries that have committed government incentives and support for building hydrogen markets. Um, we have some vertically integrated international trade projects. That's Germany and Namibia, Germany and Morocco. You've got the Saudi-Japan uh, arrangement. So, And then Australia has sort of plunked their, um, plunked their commitment down uh, to exporting. So I do think that between that and the hydrogen hubs in the United States, uh, that we may, hydrogen may really be finding its time that we may be seeing, you know, in these German deals, you've got actual end-use buyers, the German deals and the way they're structured, and even really the Saudi-Japan deal look a little bit like early liquefied natural gas deals uh, were constructed. Um, and we know that eventually that market did take off. So I'm feeling like this might be the year where companies need to think seriously about whether they're committing to a 10-year or 15-year profile to doing new projects for liquefied natural gas and whether they actually need to be shifting to something that's hydrogen-related. Very interesting. Uh, as you say, it'll be fascinating to come back in a year and talk about that. Clearly, there is a lot of momentum behind hydrogen, a lot of interest, a lot of excitement created by it. There are also enormous hurdles to be surmounted in all kinds of areas in terms of the economics, in terms of the environmental impact and so on. So yeah, interesting to, to see, as you say, this could be a very significant year of progress, but let's check in in a year's time and see how that panned out. So my choice of something to look out for in 2024 that could be good news is a much safer option, I think, because it's something that happened already in 2023, which is a significant fall in the cost of lithium-ion batteries. And it's something that we saw a lot of concern coming out of the pandemic about whether there would be a lot of problems with supply chains. And for a while, there was um, uh, an end to the decline in the cost of lithium-ion batteries. And actually, they even went up a little bit. But by the end of the year, last year, they were very significantly down still. And I think we may well see that again in 2024. The price of lithium compounds has been falling steadily. I think there's a good chance it could fall again during 2024. And cost of batteries as well, new capacity coming on stream and so on, I think we may well see those continuing to decline. And so there is a bit of a narrative that had started to emerge about EVs, about EVs will kind of never be competitive with internal combustion engines. And you know there were promises about falling battery costs. And now we're seeing that that decline has come to an end and therefore uh, batteries won't get cheaper over time and therefore EVs will always be more expensive than comparable internal combustion engine cars. I think we're now seeing perhaps a return to normality if you like and we can see that perhaps the decline in lithium-ion batteries paused for a bit but did not stop and I think it's going to continue through this year and so when you think about EVs becoming more competitive I still think the prospects for that are pretty bright. So let me just say, you know, I always I always have to tell the listeners, you know, years and years watching different commodity markets, I said this about lithium, and it's probably true about a lot of the other metals too, because if I have the incentive to look for it, I'll find it, i.e. in the United States and in India and elsewhere. And then on top of the new supply, then you have thrifting, which is the word for making the battery using less material and making it more efficient. Um, and then we have innovations where we might have some batteries that are not going to actually even use lithium. So uh, I've always been a big believer that as these markets mature in commodities in the metals world, uh, you're going to get new mining, you're going to get new efficiency. And so I'm not the least bit surprised about what you're saying because I always believed in it. Just throwing that down that I, I called that one. And <laughs> I was on a, many panels where people said she doesn't know what she's talking about, but they were just saying their book because 
you know, I was right. Fair point, fair point. I am certainly playing it safe with that one, I think. But still, I do think that's something which is going to be a significant trend through this coming year, watching that decline in battery prices continue. And so certainly I think it's something that people ought to be thinking about. So now we've just about run out of time. Just before we go, though, I want to pick up on an idea of yours, Amy, which I do think is a brilliant idea. This is usually the point in the show where we do free electrons and we talk about kind of random personal things that we've brought in. Um, but for this opening show of 2024, instead, we're going to have New Year resolutions. And we're going to talk about the energy-related New Year's resolutions that we've all made. So, Melissa, what's yours? I actually have one. I didn't even have to like think about it. It's right off the top in my in my bucket of things that I'm going to target for this year. Last year, I had the target of reading at least one book per month. Um, I did it. I surpassed the goal. I really enjoyed it. Just kind of focusing on making sure I did that. I read a ton, but specifically diving into books, which go really deep. So this year, I've got one energy and climate related book per month plus one non-energy and climate related book for a month. Last year it was a mix of things. So I've got already my two um, big contenders for February. I actually want to ask for y'all's vote on what I do in the near term. So um, at the end of January, I don't know if you guys are following it, The War Below by Ernie Schneider is coming out. Ernie Schneider. Um, so Lithium Copper and the Global Battle, Battle to Power Our Lives. That one's on my list. Um, the other one is Powering Humanity by Michael Weber. So those both come out in February. The second one actually comes out on Valentine's Day. So it'll be, uh, you know, romantic edition to, to read all these essays about energy and power in the middle. But I got to figure out January. Um, and I just finished a book and I've got two. They're sitting right here, Energy and Climate, Cadillac Desert, okay, which I know, Ed, we've talked about, or should I read Our Fragile Moment by Michael Mann, which I actually haven't read yet. Um, so what's what's the vote? Are we going Cadillac Desert? Are we going Our Fragile Moment? Which one are we going for? <laughs> They're both sitting right here. So Michael Mann is an interesting and controversial character. I've, I've never read any of his books. Would be interesting to see what you think of it. I would vote for you reading that and then give us a download on what he says and what you make of it. Cadillac Desert is a book which was very heavily featured in The Water Knife, which is the book that you and I and Robbie Orvis were all reading last year. I think you should maybe put that off and read that before we have that discussion about that book, which we've been promising for a long time, but we are going to have, I'm promising it still, but yeah, why not read the Michael Mann? I'd be really interested to hear what you think. Amy, do you agree? Is this a good choice? I think I think one has to read Michael Mann to be sort of educated on the broad range of the literature. And I'm starting a climate justice book club out of my program at NYU. And we had a vote. And I'm afraid to say Waterknife did not come in first. We're reading Braiding Sweetgrass, um, oh, which is a- great a, book wonderfully Fantastic. written book yeah. and um, really sort of mind-opening way of thinking about um, how we organize ourselves and uh, our relationship to nature. So uh, anyway, that that's sort of where I'm going in, in that in that realm. Okay. Well, I'll say what you've what you've now done is forced the, me to have a hardback book in my bag when I go to Davos here in a week, which is fine. I'm joking, y'all. But no, I'm looking forward to it. So um, Michael Mann wins out. And I've read Michael Mann's like, work, but I have not read this book. And I've heard, I've heard interesting and very good things about it. So I'm looking forward to reading it. So I will report back. And sorry, Mark, um, Cadillac Desert is going to be pushed back to at least March because uh, there's no way I'm not going to read about Critical Minerals and then Michael Weber's new book when those come out. Yes, actually, that is a very good reminder to me as well to be reading more energy-related books. And that's certainly something I should be thinking about myself as well for 2024, though I do actually have a different resolution. But before we get to mine, Amy, what's yours? Well, my New Year's resolution is partly being forced by government policy because New York City has put in a congestion tax now, quite hefty, uh, for cars coming into the city uh, in Midtown Manhattan, below 57th Street, and uh, NYU is below 57th Street. But I am I'm really committing to public transportation because I think now COVID had a, sort of a dent in people's habits, but we all need to go back to these public transportation. We need to get congestion out of cities for so many different reasons, and it's important uh, for lowering emissions. So I'm committing to an increased use of public transportation and to leave the car at home. Excellent. Sounds like a great thing to do. And looking forward to hearing from you in a year's time about how that's gone. But I'm sure it's going to work. It's going to be good. It'll be fine. 
So my resolution, unfortunately, is one that I have already broken. So my plan was, the resolution that I'd kind of come up with was not to get suckered in by hype over technological innovations and advances and exciting breakthroughs that people talk about. And you hear about these things and read about them in the media and in scientific papers. And there's a sudden kind of rush of, well, this is going to be the thing. This is going to transform all of our lives. And this is the thing that is at last going to solve all the problems we face in terms of energy and climate. And I've thought, I'm just going to not believe anything I read. I've been disappointed so many times. And then a couple of days ago, as I say, immediately after I'd made this resolution, I saw this a new story about a potential new breakthrough in room temperature superconductivity, which, if you remember, there was a whole kind of to-do last year, last summer, about a claimed breakthrough. It was then examined more closely. It seemed like, in fact, there were other explanations of what was going on. It wasn't really real. The claimed breakthrough had not, in fact, been made, and the whole thing seemed to just fizzle out, and everyone said, on to the next thing, because this is not really the transformative innovation that we had been promised initially when the first papers were published. Now we have another announcement about room temperature superconductivity, which, if it turned out to be true would be absolutely revolutionary in energy terms, would make a colossal difference to electricity, transmission and generation, would be a huge thing in terms of being able to accelerate the decarbonisation of the energy system in general and the electricity system in particular. And I'm now thinking, oh, this seems exciting. And maybe actually where that one, the announcement we had last year, now nah, that wasn't real, but this one now, actually there's you know more to it more solidly based, some refinements compared to what was discussed last year. This is the new thing. This really is the thing that is going to be transformative. Obviously, we have to expect that we'll be on that same hype cycle and that when other people try to replicate the results and people dig into it and everything, the conclusions will be undermined and the breakthrough will turn out to be not a breakthrough after all and we'll all be very disappointed and then go back to the status quo before unless we don't and unless actually it does turn out to be robust and replicable and something that is capable of commercialization and large-scale deployment. And so just for now at least, I'm clinging to that hope. I want to believe, I choose to hope that there is something really dramatic and exciting happening and we'll see. And maybe I'll be disappointed again, but maybe I won't. It is, Ed, the classically important breakthrough we could have. Because if you could have transmission that didn't change temperature, you would need a lot less power generation because you could move electricity around with the international dateline. And peak would be in a different time and different places and you could move a lot more cross-border electricity trade to balance renewables and to... Uh, eliminate the need for extra generation. Even even within countries, it would be significant, like the United States has multiple time zones. So uh, we worked on that when I was a professor at Rice University. There's a big group working on that, and it's really an important area of science. So we do have to leave it there, I'm afraid. Um, Melissa, thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's really fun chatting with y'all. And Amy, thanks very much to you. Very good. I'm looking forward to a great 2024 on the Energy Gang. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks to our producers, Sam Nash and Toby Biggins-Gilchrist. And above all, many thanks to all of you for listening. And as Amy says, we hope you all have a fantastic 2024. As ever, we're very keen to hear from you. Please do send us your feedback, comments, criticism, complaints, suggestions, ideas for subjects we will be covering in the future. And we'll be back in two weeks with all the latest news and views from the energy transition. Until then, goodbye.